He will spend them in like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? This morning we're going to look primarily at verses 10 and 11. We'll come back to verse 12 next Sunday because Solomon is going to prepare us for the chapters to come. And in, in essence, really what he does is he answers the two questions in verse 12 and the rest of what we will look at in Ecclesiastes. But Solomon is going to bring this to a close. He's talked about futility in man. This is from chapter 1, verse 2 through 6, 12. And this provides for us a transition point. And I begin with a, a observation, a review by Swindoll. And I don't quote from Swindoll very often, but hey, if you're right, you're right. And I have to acknowledge that. So he talks about these pictures that Solomon paints for us, and they are very clear. He talks about the serious philosopher who is bored and bewildered. He talks about the clown who tries to laugh his way through life or the hedonistic playboy who forgets all restraint. The good times Charlie who is living it up and the industrious worker who hopes to find satisfaction in his job or the worshiper who tries to barter with God. We saw this in chapter 5. Or the blue-collar welder who labors without much anxiety and yet not without his own struggles. Or the entrepreneur we saw who lost it all in bad investments leaving in him with only insomnia as he's tossed and turns through the night. And then we have the wealthy person or the filthy rich who seeks to find satisfaction in his possessions. This is a journey that Solomon has taken us on in the first few chapters of Ecclesiastes. But what he is doing for us is he's slamming every door shut except for the door of faith. He shows us that the end result of all of these pathways, they lead us to nothing. They lead us not to satisfaction and fulfillment in life, to meaning or to purpose, but they lead us towards futility. The other thing that Solomon helps us do in the first few chapters is that he helps us to pass through the things temporal, helping us to feel the weight of the things that are eternal. He is going to make a transition here then in the end of chapter 6 as he moves into chapter 7 and he is going to paint a different picture for us. He's going to move us towards a positive end. But he wants to hang on this, the sovereignty of God. And that is what I want to focus on this morning in these verses, especially in verses 10 and 11. And they seem rather confusing, the wording that Solomon says. But in hindsight, as you look at it, they actually make a lot of sense. And they prepare a way for what is to come, but they also bring everything to a summation for us. And so if we can look at this, we are going to look at the sovereignty of God, the flow of the preacher's argument as he moves through the first part of this book into the next section. But one has observed the fact that if you move through from chapter 6, verses 12, 10 through 12, into chapter 7 and following, we see the sovereignty of God over all things. God's inscrutable plan, chapter 7 and 8, and the man's ignorance of the future, chapter 9, verse 1 through 11, 6. And Solomon is going to remind us of this reality. We can understand things about God. We can understand aspects of the plan of God, but we cannot understand everything about God's plan. There are aspects of it that are mysterious to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Those secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed are for us and for the generations that follow forever. And so we understand this when we come to this, that He is going to bring us into a new section, starting in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Numerically, this is the halfway point. We talked about this last Sunday. 
that there are 111 verses from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 9. And there are 111 verses from 6.10 all the way to 12.8. And then in 12.9, there is a prologue. So this is the beauty of what Solomon does for us. He is going to give us, in a sense, a prologue in verses six, or chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. But he also he's going to bring a summation to the things that he's been talking about. And then he constitutes, if you will, this epilogue in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. And if we look at the number 111 is 37 times 3, 37 is the numerical value of the term futility, Havel, in Hebrew, similar to what we found in the genealogy in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1, right? 14, 14, 14, and 14, if you add up the characters or the numeric value of David's name, it is 14. This is just a Hebrew way of writing. So this is for free. I won't charge you for this one, but we move on. But what Solomon is going to do in these verses is he's going to reflect on the inscrutability of God's plan, of His divine providence, that there is a mysteriousness to it, but there is, if you will, there are things that God has revealed to us. And so what's interesting is that as we move through the sections that follow, there's going to be a re repetition of phrases. One of them is does not know and cannot discover. And we see this over and over and over again, starting from here, leading into chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 10, 11, and then into chapter 12. In other words, he doesn't want us to forget that understanding God's plan in the present and His ways in the future and all of that we understand these things partially, but not completely. In other words, what Solomon helps us to understand is that God is infinite and we are finite, we are limited. And so there are things that we cannot fully grasp and understand about God. We, we attempt to do with our theology is put these nice tidy little bows on things about God and understanding ways in which God works. But Solomon reminds us of the fact that we are finite, we are of the earth. We are man. We are Adam. We are made of the Adama. We are made of the earth. And therefore, we cannot understand everything about God. And therefore, God is incomprehensible to us. And when we use this term incomprehensible, we're talking about the fact that it is, we are unable to fully understand everything about God. So it is true for us to say that God cannot be understood, but it's also true for us to say that He cannot be understood fully or exhaustively. We can know God, but God is incomprehensible. And this is something that Solomon is going to recurringly bring before our mind's eye as we walk through the chapters that follow. But these are observations that his own father David had. Psalm 145, verse 3, David writes this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Or Psalm 147, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. In other words, we will never be able to measure or fully know the understanding of God. It is far too great for us to equal it or even to understand it. In other words, the finite will never completely understand that which is infinite. And David, as he reflects on the knowledge of God in all of his ways, he says in Psalm 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And Solomon is going to reflect on this reality, but what he's going to challenge us to do then, the conclusion is just fear God and seek to please Him. Or I'm going to teach you a Latin phrase. Salvitur ambulando. Salvitur, to solve. Ambulando is to amble forward or to walk. The Latin phrase means that it is solved by walking. 
In other words, sometimes we find in our life that there are problems, things that we don't understand, or maybe we just don't understand how God is working in our life right here, right now. But yet if we keep walking in obedience, eventually He will provide clarity for us. Eventually we will understand what He is doing in our life. Sometimes we just need to just be obedient and do the things that God has called us to do and let Him work everything else out around us. So we must, if you will, apply solvitur ambulando. Solve by means of walking. Just be obedient. I know what I need to do tomorrow morning when I get up in the morning. I know what God expects of me through the day. I may not understand everything that He's doing in my life, but I know what He wants me to do practically moment by moment. And I can leave the rest to Him. So Solomon is going to dwell on the sovereignty of God and the authority of God in verses 10 and following. And we're going to unpack this a little bit, but when we talk about the sovereignty of God, it speaks of position. In other words, God is the chief being in and over all of the universe. Sovereignty also talks about the fact of power and authority. God is the supreme power and authority in and over the universe. And Solomon bears this out in this statement that he makes in chapter 6, verse 10. He says, whatever exists has already been named. Now, on first reading of this, you read it and go, well, this is awfully vague. Thanks a lot, Solomon. But this is what he wants us to do. He wants us to think. This is the great thing about Proverbs and why I pursued it for, for so many years and have read through Proverbs in my life. Because it promises two things. It promises skillful living and enables you how to live a life wisely, but it also provides for you mental acumen. It enables you to think and understand and to reason and think through things in life. Because oftentimes when we face situations, we need to see them for what they are. And Proverbs enables us to do that. So Solomon wants us to think and process these things. But if we really think about it, we understand what he's saying. The first thing I have to tell you is that in Hebrew, this is what we call a nifal. A nifal verb means that this is passive, passive voice. It means that God is the agent of the action. In other words, when he talks about things that have already been named, he's talking about the fact that God has done this. In Hebrew and in Greek, we have similar things, and we refer to them grammatically as divine passives. In other words, God is the understood subject of the action that is reflected here. So Solomon doesn't have to use the name God or reference God. He just uses the nifal, the passive, and we understand that God is the one who is doing the action. So first we understand from this that naming displays authority. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, which is very interesting to me in chapter 6, there are a lot of ways in which Solomon, by the words and phrasings he uses in, in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, he takes us back to Genesis. A lot of the terminology and the, the phrasing that he uses brings our mind back to that chapter, or at least it ought to, Genesis chapter 1. But he does the same thing here as he talks about the naming in reference to creation. In other words, when God created everything, He also established His authority over all of creation by naming everything, day, night, expanse, waters, land, seas, and even man himself. God declared what these things would be. He revealed His authority over the stars by naming them. And Isaiah is going to dwell on this in Isaiah 40, verse 26. He says, Look up at the sky. Who created all these heavenly lights? He is the one who leads out their ranks. He calls them all by name. 
He goes on to say, because of his absolute power and awesome strength, not one of them is missing. And God is establishing, not only is he creator of everything, he has authority over everything. And therefore he has declared what his name is. And another part of naming is also the practice of expressing the nature of something, giving it an appropriate name. In other words, when he talks about man, and we'll look at this in a moment, but when he names it light, light is light and it's not darkness, or day is day and it is not night. And what's interesting to me is as I started thinking about this, and a passage that I love very much from Isaiah, there is a warning of those who attempt to alter how God names things. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says this, Beware of those who call evil good and good evil, who turn darkness into light and light into darkness, who turn bitter into sweet and sweet into bitter. There is this caution of those who try to alter these names because what happens is when we do this, we move into the world of illusion. We lose touch with reality. These are things that God has designated by His authority as Creator over all things. He has called them what He has called them. And we are never to change those names. If we do, we lose touch with reality. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are living in life this way today. We look at the world around us and there are a lot of people because they are trying to alter God's design, things that He has declared to be, and His order of things. And this leads us into nothing but confusion and darkness. And the more that we turn away from these things, the more difficulty we will find within society. So what Solomon is affirming in these verses is that God has sovereignly decreed the nature and essence of everything that exists. So he goes on to say in verse 10, if you notice with me, and it is known what man is. In other words, God named the first human being man, Adam. It isn't only his name, but it is the name that he has given to all of humanity. We are all Adam. Why? Because we are made of the earth, Adama. It's simple. It's basic. But it is so fundamental to our life and existence here on earth and our understanding of who we are before God. And Solomon wants us to understand this. And we might argue with God and dispute the categories and, and the way that He has designed things, and we may not like this. But Solomon says the more that you argue and dispute against God, the more confusion comes, the more futility we enter into. And it's interesting that if you go back to Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and I think this is an important passage for us in regards to the days in which we live. When God created, notice this in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, in the day when God created man, He created them male and female, He blessed them and He named them what? He named them man, Adam. Now, there are those years ago, and now it's even in full force, but there were those years ago who started to push towards not calling humanity generally mankind. They preferred humanity or human beings or persons, something that is more gender neutral, but not mankind, because somehow that's a little insensitive to women. But here's the thing. If God has created it, if God has named it, if God has called it what it is, 
Who are we then to argue and dispute with God and how He has designed things to be? Because when we do, Solomon says, we plunge ourselves into futility and vanity. Meaninglessness. Emptiness. Right? Look at the absurdity that is around us. But this is what we do when we turn away from the order of God. Thus man has been properly named, he is earthly made, he is tied to the earth, and that name fits all of mankind very properly, and it puts us in our place. He has already reflected in chapter 5, verse 1, that God is in heaven and we are here on earth. And this isn't anything new. If we go to the New Testament, even John the Baptist, he realized the reality of this and his last witness that he bore to Jesus Christ in John chapter 3, verse 31 and following. He says this, He who comes from above is above all, speaking of Jesus. He who is of the earth, speaking of himself, John the Baptist. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. This is who we are. This is how God has designed us to be. So he is reflecting on man and considering him in all of his powers, endowments, whether he's wise, whether he's foolish, rich, poor, doesn't matter. We are mere creature. We are poor mortals. We are of the earth. We are Adam because we are from Adama. This is how God has designed us to be. We need God. We need his revelation. We need him to tell us who we are so that we can understand life. If we're left to ourselves to try to come an understanding of what is true purpose and meaning and everything else, we wind up with futility. Man is earthy. He is destined then to return to the dust out of which he was taken. And this reality Solomon reflected on in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, verse 20, and he's going to bring us back to this thought again, especially in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. We are from dust and to dust we shall return. He moves then to talk about God's superiority. In other words, if mankind's position is clear, it's on the earth, then him who is stronger than he refers to God who is in heaven. And the exhortation that we have from this verse is that let not such a creature think to dispute with him who is mightier than he, that is, his creator. Now it's interesting, this word dispute, because it's related to the Hebrew word for judge. Sometimes we as human beings, we put God under our judgment and scrutiny. We dispute with God. We don't like the order of things. We don't like the way the things that He has designed or the way that He has done things or even in the circumstances in our life that we don't like the way that He is leading our life. And sometimes we begin to question Him. What do you think you are doing here? And we begin to find ourselves challenging God. And Solomon warns us that when we argue with God, it just leads us to more futility. When we begin to dispute with him and to call into question God's design and order of things, he goes on in chapter 6, verse 12, that man does not know what is best for him or what his future holds completely. And since we don't know these things, we must trust God. For us as human beings, we can see some things about the plan of God, but we cannot see everything about the plan of God. I was thinking, I, I saw, since it's football today, was it DeMar, DeMar Hamlin? Was that his name? The, the football player who collapsed on the field. So I saw him speaking the other day. And it was interesting. He made this statement. He said, sometimes 
our vision is too small, even when we think we're looking at the big picture. He said, I thought my life was to be lived in the sense that I was supposed to be the best football player I could possibly be and that I should be an example and a model for other people. He said, but I realized that God has a greater purpose for my life. And it's not just football. He went on to say that it's interesting that he says it's easier for us to face our fears when we know what our purpose in life is. Solomon gives us this reality. He affirms these truths for us. But sometimes we question God and what He does. We, that which He has made, questions the Maker. Elihud reached a similar conclusion in Job 35, 15, or 16, when he says, So Job opens his mouth emptily. He multiplies words without knowledge. Or Isaiah in chapter 45, verses 9 through 12, and he uses the figure of the potter and the clay to explain the futility of us Quirling and questioning the Maker and His design for our life. And this is an important passage because God is revealing the fact that He's going to use Cyrus to remove or to return the nation of Israel to their proper place, the place of the home of promise. And this is what Isaiah says. He says, Woe to you who quarrels with His Maker, an earthen vessel among vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. In other words, he works lacking any kind of skill whatsoever. Does God know what he's doing with us? Is there ever a time in your life where you've reached that point when things are going on in your life and you wonder if somehow the potter doesn't know what he's doing with the clay? The sovereign creator, he controls all things, including the circumstances of our life that we face as human beings, as mankind. God is in control of it all. But sometimes we find ourselves questioning what God does. Swindoll had this statement, and I think it's apropos here. He says, so long as I fight, he says, so long as I fight the hand of God, I do not learn the lessons he is attempting to place before me. Solomon is going to challenge us to think differently. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Just an example. Solomon writes in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 3, Sorrow is better than laughter. Now just think about that for a minute. Sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Say so What? How is sorrow better than laughter? And then he goes to say, when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. What is he trying to say by this? Is Solomon trying to tell us that a sad face is good for the heart? Is Solomon trying to explain to us that sadness has a refining influence upon our heart? Just think about that as we process these things as we come to next week. But Solomon is going to challenge us to look at life differently, to think differently. And he, he's going to lay some heavy things on us to consider. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Really? <laughs> I would think good times are better than bad times. But then when I think about my life, what are some of the greatest lessons I've learned? It's been when I've gone through bad times. 
It's been through the times of trial, frustration, right? Difficulties. So Solomon is going to challenge our thinking in relation to the sovereignty of God. Hence, these verses bring a conclusion to what he's already discussed, but they prepare us for what is to come. But I end with just a few thoughts of my own. What God wills for us is best for us because He knows far more about us than we do. Sometimes I think I know what's best for my life, and sometimes I think I know me better than anyone else knows me. And in one sense, that is true. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? Who knows man better than the spirit of man, right? So who knows God better than the spirit of God? So therefore, what better to have than the spirit of God revealing God to us? And if someone is going to understand who I am, better that I reveal myself to them, right? But Solomon takes it farther than that for us. He helps us to understand that God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we need better than what we know. So why would anyone want to then have his or her own way just for the privilege of exercising, quote unquote, freedom? Because this is what we, we say we want. I want to be free. I want to be free to choose and decide and do whatever I want. But here's a thought for you. Insisting on having our own way isn't freedom at all. It's the worst kind of bondage. And in fact, it is the most terrible judgment we could experience in this life would be to have God say that we are given up and to let us have our own way. Romans chapter 1. Where God says, okay, fine. If that's the way you want it. Have your own way. And read Romans 1 to see where that takes us. So Solomon brings a fitting end to the things that he has laid out for us already in Ecclesiastes. But he is preparing our minds and hearts for what is to come. Verse 12, he asks a series of questions. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him? under the sun. He will answer those questions for us in the chapters that follow.